0: Hey guys, this is Pastor Kyle here alongside Pastor Bailey. Grateful that you guys have tuned in to our podcast. We trust that what you're about to hear will be beneficial for your day, and we're grateful that you've stopped by to hear what the Lord is doing in Milledgeville. As you're grabbing your seat, be finding your way to Judges chapter 14. Judges 14. The title of the message today is Perceiving God's providence, a call for the church to behold God's provision. It's my hope and and aim this morning is that as we look to God's word, that we would behold. And what we would behold is God's provision for his people, namely us. We'll be using that word providence a lot today, so I think it Comes from the word. I ask the Lord for his grace over our time this morning. Father, as we come as your children in this room, or some of us perhaps not yet, God, we long to hear from you through your inspired, sufficient word. So, God, as we look to the story of Samson and how you are orchestrating all things in his life to bring about providence for Israel. I pray that you would pierce our hearts and show us how you provide for us, but how you are a God of providence, ordering every single thing. God, you are the author of all the joys of our lives, and yes, even in the pain, you're working all things for your glory and our ultimate good. Would we believe that this morning? Holy Spirit, would you give me the words to encourage your church, to convict it, to wed it to your gospel as we need this, not just to save us, but to sustain us every single day. God, would you be with us? It's for your name and for your glory. We pray all of these things. Amen. So if you haven't been with us, we're in a study really just verse by verse to the book of Judges. We've entitled this series, A Cycle of Sin and Salvation, and last week we came to see probably the most famous judge. Perhaps if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, it may be the only judge you know in Samson, and we saw last week through the story of Samson that God was imminent, that he was personable, that he was knowable, And we saw this through a theophany, the angel of the Lord, that God made himself manifest. And he came to Manoah and his wife and said that they were going to give birth to a son. And this son was to be a Nazarite. And remember, we talked a bit about it. But today we're going to see the fullness of what this all meant, this Nazarite vow. That Samson was not to touch any grape or not to even drink of wine or not to cut his hair or not to touch anything dead. Because God was using him for a purpose. God was providentially orchestrating the events of Samson's life for a purpose. And we saw that at the tail end of chapter 13, that his purpose was to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So today, what we're going to see in chapter 14, I believe, is the spark. It's the starting event. If this is a domino, a chain of events that we're going to see through all of Samson's life, it starts today. And this event is going to lead to the deliverance of Israel. So as we're looking to God's word this morning, what is the first way we will see God's providence in Judges chapter 14? If you're taking notes, I believe the first thing we will see by way of God's providence is that God shows his providence, yes, even in sin. We'll see this in verses 1 through 4. Read with me, starting in verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. Now, Timnah was a Philistine-occupied territory. This territory should have belonged to the tribe of Judah, but we've seen over and over again they were selling themselves into slavery of sin, and this territory belonged to the Philistines. Keep reading with me. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my daughter wife. Rather than going to Timnah to deliver Israel from the Philistines, he goes to Timnah and asks his parents to deliver to him a Philistine for a wife. Do we not see here already this perversion of this call of the the ordering purpose of God's providence in the life of Samson? Do we think that God has gotten this wrong, that he has raised up and miraculously birthed Samson, and now Samson's going to do something against the will of God? By no means. God is even at work in the middle of Samson's sin. And yes, it is sin. Read with me in verse 3. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? parents are faithful when they remember. Deuteronomy 7.3, when God commands the Israelites not to intermarry, he says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons." Samson was called to deliver Israel and instead is intermarrying with them. This is sin, but is God not providential? Is God not orchestrating even this? Yes, friends, he is orchestrating even this. The tail end of verse three, Samson continues, but Samson said to his father, get her for me for she is right in my eyes. She is right in my eyes. Remember this demand as we'll come back to it shortly. Verse four, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. Here we see in this verse that this was God orchestrating this, this was God's providence, this was God bringing this about, God was providing this woman for Samson. How do we know that? It says from the Lord, that the Lord was bringing this to pass, he was providentially orchestrating this marriage. The text does not say he was using Samson's sinful desires. We can read that into it, but that is not what God is doing here. He's not using the sinful desires, but rather orchestrating this. It was from the Lord. It was God's providence for Israel to bring this about as a means to deliver them. Read with me the tail end of verse 4. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. This marriage was the very means by which God was going to, to begin to deliver Israel. Here we see the providential hand of God on display, even in sin. The desire of Samson to marry this woman was absolutely sinful, and God absolutely brought it about. God providentially sent Samson to Timnah, and he had a Philistine woman walk before him. Think about this with me, friends, that he knit that Philistine woman together in her mother's womb, and he knew what would be appealing to the eyes of Samson. He created this woman, and she catches Samson's eyes. God ordains all things, yes, even sin, yet he is not the author of sin. Let me say that again. He can ordain all things, yet not be the author of sin. Think with me here. What was the greatest sin to ever take place in human history? The murder of Christ yet god planned it we see this in acts 2:23 this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men we see this again in acts 4:27 through 28 for truly in this city there were gathered to de- together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the gentiles and the people of israel and catch this verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God, friends, does not only plan the destination, but the journey, every stop along the way. If you're like me, you may be thinking at this point that how is God not the author of sin if he is ordaining this? The sinful woman, the sinful desire of Samson in his heart, You see, it's simply that. It's the desire of the heart of man that is culpable. Although we are sinful, God is not, and God can even use our sinful desires. James would say this in James 1, 13 through 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire? Was it not Samson's own desire that caused him to pursue this Philistine woman? Remember verse three, I said we would come back to it. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. It is his eyes that are looking upon the sinful woman. We see this all throughout scripture, that God even uses our sinful desires to bring about the ultimate good for his people and his glory. God does this all throughout scripture. We see this in the temptation of Eve in Genesis 3. We see this desire of the eyes again. The the fruit was a delight to her eyes. We saw this here in Judges 14, the desire of the eyes of the Philistine woman. Did we not even see this in the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4, of this desire of the eyes that Satan was seeking to tempt Christ, the promise of giving him the kingdoms of all the world? Well, Christ, like Samson too, overcame We'll see here that he overcame a lion, as we'll see in Samson, but Christ overcame Satan in the wilderness with nothing in his hand but the word of God in his heart. So should we. This is undoubtedly a tough theological truth. If you're sitting there and I can see some of the faces, are we really starting this morning off with such a difficult truth? This is one of the most profound truths in all of Scripture that God can use, providentially even sinful desires to bring about his will. If you are confused, if you're feeling restless, you're in good company even with the greatest of theologians. Here, what John Calvin has to say about this truth. But how it was ordained by the foreknowledge and decree of God, what man's future was without God being implicated as an associate in the fault. Is clearly a secret so much excelling the insight of the human mind that I am not ashamed to confess ignorance. That even Calvin says this. So what are we to do? How are we to better understand this? How can I give you a better picture of what we're talking about, that God providentially shows his care for all of the world, even through sin? Perhaps what I can do is not give you a clearer picture to understand this truth, but a clearer picture to help your heart be at ease. I believe we'll have this quote for you here of what Calvin says to this very paradox. Let's consider how Calvin eased his mind and do likewise. Is it any wonder that such immense splendor should blunt the acuteness of our mind? Our physical eyes are not enough to sustain a contemplation of the sun, is our spiritual insight greater than our natural powers or the majesty of God inferior to the glory of the sun? When we look at the Son, we cannot sustain but more than a second. And at times when we look at God, and if we can wrap our mind around completely this God of Scripture and all of his providence, he is not a God worth worshiping. He's a God that we can fully understand and hold in our hands and stick in our pocket and not a God that is worthy to be worshiped and feared. God even uses our sinful desires to bring about his glory, and we see this in the story of Samson. Church, let us not dare to deny the truth of what Scripture plainly teaches and our experience confirms. God's providential hands are not bound by the sin, by our sin, but our sins are instruments bound to the providential will of God that God uses our sin even to bring about his glory. How do we best understand this in light of what's going on in the world today? Friends, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with each of you. You are just broken over the injustice of a senseless killing. And how many of us are just anxious, and I've even seen people in this room saying they have to get off social media because we can't just take another moment of it. How is this good news that God providentially even uses sin? Because even the evil desires of people who in prejudice hate someone because of the color of their skin, while absolutely sinful, is still performing the very acts that God's providence will use for his glory and his people's ultimate good that this murder is not outside of the bounds of the control of God. Think about it. God providentially ordained COVID to happen so that we were all inside, that we were all looking at our screens and we would all see this injustice. Do we think this is happening by accident? Do we think this sin is hidden from God, that God doesn't see what's going on? By no means. Although this is difficult to navigate, it will only serve to glorify God and be for our good. Why? As the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us in question 28, that adversity teaches us to be patient. Rather, difficulties teach us to be patient in adversity. Sin even teaches us to be patient in adversity. This circumstance will only bolster our faithful witness. Are we sitting back thinking how this is going to divide or how this is going to break down the walls of evangelicalism? Are we believing in the gospel as sufficient that when people come to us and ask us our opinion on what's going on in the world, are we going to sit back and shrink? Are we going to step forward in boldness and saying the answer to this solution is the answer that has been since the beginning of the world when sin entered into the fray in Judges 3, the gospel came forward. The gospel is the solution. When a heart is dead and it hates its brother, the only thing that can make that heart love again is the gospel. Well, yes, there are means by which we can structure things. This is a spiritual issue. And let me say this, that when it comes to this, the answer is that we are all made in the image and likeness of God. There is but one race, the race of Adam. And while it manifests itself in different ethnicities, in the glory of God and showing how beautiful his creation is, we have already been racially reconciled in Christ. Read with me in Ephesians two fourteen through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, who has made us both one. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, two different ethnicities. He is saying he's made us both one. In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We have been reconciled together as the race of Adam back to God. And we have a duty to proclaim this truth as the church. The question is, do we believe scripture is sufficient for the sin going on in the world that God has providentially brought this about so that way we can be faithful gospel witnesses? God, yes, is even providentially using this horrible murder to bring about our bolstering of faith and the advancement of his gospel. We cannot no longer sit back in comfort. Our comfort has been removed. How many of us will be stretched because of this? That God even uses sin to stretch us. It may not even be our sin, but sins of others to stretch us, to put us in difficult places, to have difficult conversations. If you know me, you see and hear the angst in my heart and the passion that's coursing through my veins at this moment, as it should be through yours, because this is the time for the church to be the church. And I pray we would all see this as what it is, is God providentially even using sin in the world as he did in the sinful desires of Samson to bring about our ultimate deliverance back to himself, as he will for Israel. As we jump back into the text here, how else do we see God's providence? In Judges 14, I believe the second thing we'll see this in is in creation, that God shows his providence, his care, his orchestrating of all things through creation. We'll see this in verses 5 through 9. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, A young lion came toward him roaring. Notice that the lion came towards him, not them, because Samson had separated from his parents, as we will see in the next verse. But Samson had gone down into the vineyard, probably to glean a snack on his journey. Doesn't seem too harmless, does it, until we remember this Nazarite vow that he wasn't even supposed to touch a grape. And no, this is not a condemnation of scripture about drinking. We would have to do some theological gymnastics to make it mean that. This is him being consecrated to God and being disobedient. Verse six, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. I don't know what that means, as one tears a young goat. I did a little bit of study. I don't know if that catches you as humorous, I don't know how many of you have tore a young goat, but what was happening here is he killed this lion like a goat before a goat were to be sacrificed. They would take it by the scruff of the neck in a bare hand and they would tear its throat. And this is how Samson killed this lion. Now why, if we notice in verse six, it says the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Why did the Lord empower him to do this? Was not Samson being disobedient by going down in the vineyard? Absolutely, but we see that uh, most commentators believe that the Spirit came upon him at this moment to show him his strength, to encourage him to go up against the Philistines. Because we remember, God is providentially ordering all of this. Tell into verse six, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. This concealment from his parents was due to him breaking two of the three stipulations of his Nazarite vow, not touching any grapes, and not touching a dead body. He had touched the dead carcass of that lion. Verse seven, when he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Again, we see Samson's desire of the eyes, perceiving and beholding anything but God's providence. It's what he wants when he wants it in the manner of which he wants it. Verse eight, after some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. Samson again in sin turns towards the vineyard and carcass, perhaps to glean again, to see his mighty deed. Friends, is it not true, once you have blazed a path of sin, is it not easier to tread down it once more? Verse 9, he scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. Yet another sinful gleaning on his journey as he touched the dead carcass with his hands yet again. tell into verse 9, And he came to his father and mother, and he gave some to them, and they ate. The prophet Samuel is writing this book, and he purposefully uses the same language of the sin of Eve. Did we catch that? When Eve ate of the fruit, what did she do? She gave it to Adam to eat as well. Sin is so often seeking for company or friends. May we beware of friends that are anything but church. Tell into verse 9, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Did not tell his parents, concealing yet again. Friends, if you are ever having difficulty discerning if something is sinful, Threatened to drag it into the light and see if it fights for the shade of secrecy. You too may be falling prey to the same thing as Samson. But here we see God is providential through his creation. How? How is God providential through his creation? Is this not a story about Samson? But what did we see? We saw, A, a vineyard. Whether it was planted or whether it was wild that God caused this vineyard to be planted and caused it to bear fruit, knowing full well that Samson would come along one day into this vineyard. This was only to further Samson's story, to further bring about the deliverance of Israel. We see his creation again, the lion. Why was the lion there in the vineyard? Did the Lord not send this lion into the vineyard, perhaps for this very reason that this lion pup was perhaps birth just for this very purpose, to be destroyed as to be an object lesson for us today. What about the bees when he goes back? God sends those bees to nest in that lion carcass, knowing Samson would come back through and seek to get the honey. All of this, all of God's creation was providentially put in motion in order for this story, for the deliverance of Israel that we'll see at the end of the story of Samson. You see, all of creation is created to worship God and his submission to God, save for mankind. We are the only thing in all of creation that dares to look at the creator God in the face and snub our nose and say, not your will, but mine. When Jesus walked the earth in Luke 19, 40, when he was talking to the Pharisees and saying, if we don't worship even the rocks will, I tell you, if these were silent, the children of men, the very stones would cry out. Matthew six twenty six. we consider all of creation as a means of encouragement for us as believers, that God is providentially caring for us. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God provides for the birds of the field. They don't fret about, hopping about, worrying where they will get their next meal. The lilies are here today and gone tomorrow. But if God provides, how much more will he sovereignly, providentially provide for you? According to his will, for his glory in your ultimate good. Charles Spurgeon says this about creation, of how it shows God's providence and it's all under his authority. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam, Does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. Even dust echoes out to the glory of God. Friends, what are we but dust? But as we said earlier, we are made in the imago day, in the image and likeness of God, and thus we are higher in the created order, yet we are so prone not to give God his providential worship. Consider this with me. Samuel is forsaking the promise from God that he would provide a land flowing with milk and honey. This was the promise to the Israelites of the promised land of Canaan that it would be flowing with milk and honey. He is forsaking this promise and seeking to provide for himself with this honey. Undoubtedly, when Samson was stung by a bee or two in the process, do we too willingly endure the sting of sin to sample the sweetness of sin? Do we endure stings? Do we go back down that trail knowing where it leads? Do we trust and rest in God's providence that he has something far better? Do we trust scripture when he says, in his right hand are pleasures forevermore? Are we willing to endure a bit of a sting here and there to be temporarily sated by sin, only to fall prey to it as that honey, as scripture says, don't eat too much honey lest you vomit. The honey of God is nothing but sweet and nourishing to our souls as we remember the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the sweetness of God. We cannot have too much. There is no such thing as temperance when it comes to the things of the Lord, but I guarantee you this, friend, there will come a season, if not now, one day that that sin will no longer be sweet but you will see it as it truly is. As a dog returns to his vomit, so is a man who returns to his folly. The gospel of Christ is so sweet. Because we see too in this dead carcass of a lion, there was something sweet for Samson. We see it in the dead carcass of the lion of Satan that is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy, prowling around that Christ when he came and died on Calvary, not only crushed the head of a serpent, but he crushed that lion. And inside that death of the lion, there is something sweet for us. It's the sweetness of the gospel of God. So, church, let us not transfix our eyes on the provisions of creation in vineyards and honeys as, as Samson did, but behold what creation points us to, the creator and provider God. Let us fix our eyes on Christ his incarnation, his birth, his perfect life, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign and rule now, him being at the right hand of the Father, his presence with us today through the Spirit, his imminent return. Friends, fix your eyes on those. Those are all of God's providence for you. We can fix our eyes so much on the things of this world that we can grow weary Are you not weary, perhaps, like I am weary this week as I'm looking at everything that is happening in our society and I fix my eyes on things that are temporal. I lose heart. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. It's a, a letter of exhortation to the people of the Hebrews to not lose heart. And when it comes to this culmination, this crescendo, really in chapter 12, the author says this, fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame is sat down at the right hand of God almighty on high. Consider him so you do not grow weary and lose heart. The ultimate providence that you need, of God provision for you is not that job. It is not that relationship. It is not for COVID to be over. It is not for all of this social unrest to stop. The greatest provision that God ever provided was the provision of Christ crucified for the sins of his children and the grace that he allotted to you in that. Let us behold this provision of God. It is the sweetest nectar to our soul. How else is God's providence revealed through this story? I believe the third thing we'll see is in mankind as we've alluded to this morning. Verses 10 through 18. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. The root word for feast here in Hebrew, sith, means a drinking feast. (laughs) Again, forsaking his vow to God to enjoy in revelry with the enemy of God. Isn't it amazing that Samson is accounted faithful in Hebrews 11? He's listed in a line of faithful men. But it should not lower our bar for holiness ourselves, but raise our appreciation for God's grace. That even if Samson is accounted as faithful, we see how great the grace of God is. We will indeed see this faithfulness of Samson before we are done with his story. I promise you that. Verse 11 is, soon as the people saw him, that's Samson, they brought 30 companions to be with him. His companions had to be provided because any of his friends, the Israelites, would not go down to Timnah to be a part of this marriage. They would not be a part of condoning this intermarrying between God's people and others. I don't know if you guys know this. How many of you guys have ever been to a wedding of someone that is not a believer? A couple of us, Right? There's many people that would say this verse and this commentary, uh, a couple commentaries I was reading this week would say that uh, we should really seriously consider what we are doing as we're going because what we are doing as we are part of that assembly and that congregation is we are entering into their covenant vows with them. So just as we're about to do at the tail end of our gathering today and installing a faithful brother as a deacon, you guys as covenant members are entering into a vow with him at the tail end to help support him in it. When we go to weddings, we were doing the same. Something for us to consider as a means to perhaps advance the gospel and to have a serious conversation with those. And we see that from the text here. That's a little, it's a free little nugget here, not in the notes. But what we saw here is that they brought 30 companions. Why? Notice what Uh, Verse 11 at the beginning says, as soon as the people saw him, they saw him, we're talking a lot about seeing and perceiving and beholding. They saw how big Samson was. This guy was massive with long locks of hair, never cutting it. This is like the biggest bodybuilder guy you've ever seen. And so they provided 30 companions, companions, a nice way of saying bodyguards. They were fearful of him. Remember the Philistines and Israelites are at enmity right now. They were fearful that he could be coming to wage war against them. Verse 12, and Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. This would have been a high price. It would have been a rich treasure. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. This was a bout of wits, this is a bout of wits, not because uh, they were fighting and there's a war. They can't fight each other right now, so what are they going to do? What do men do when they get together? If they can't fight. They're going to try to outsmart one another because men, by nature, more often than not, we are egotistical and prideful. There's nothing different with Samson here. But what we see here, there's more going on than just pride. There's national pride. You see, uh, think back to the space race with the U.S. and the Soviet Union. What was really going on there in that space race, it was the race to get to the moon, but really it was nationalistic pride. And that's what's happening here, nationalistic pride, that Samson is saying, I can outwit you because the Israelites are more intelligent than the Philistines. Verse 14, and he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. This is the honey in the dead lion's carcass. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. God provided these circumstances for this riddle to even come about. Remember God's providence. That God even allowed all of this to happen so that way this riddle would take place. If there were no lion, if there were no honey, this riddle wouldn't take place. But if there was no vineyard, the lion or the honey wouldn't take place. And if there was no desire for a Philistine woman, he wouldn't even be in the vineyard. God is orchestrating all of this. Verse 15, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? That word impoverish, really in the Hebrew, what it means is to usurp. Have you invited this this Israelite man here to usurp us, to overthrow us? So I, I think we'll have this graphic here for you, you Want to put it on the screen because uh, some of these, this timeline can seem confusing uh, specifically when we get into verse 16. So what you're seeing there on the screen is uh, in the black, that's the first three days that uh, we're gonna see that they could not answer the riddle. We saw that uh, at the tail end of verse 14, in three days they could not. In the red is the days of the feast. So it's a seven-day feast. It's a 10-day period. So let's leave that, that uh, up there for you, uh, for them on the screen, and I'll read this, and I'll show you what I'm talking about in verse 16. So uh, follow along with me in your Bibles there. Verse 16, And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, shall I tell you. She wept before him the seven days of the feast that it lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard then she told the riddle to her people so why this is seemingly confusing is because after 3 days they could not answer the riddle how would she weep all 7 days of the feast if there were 3 days gone by because if you look uh, at uh, verse number 15 when it says on the 4th day it's not the 4th day of the feast but it's the 4th day of the week we see that's wednesday sunday monday tuesday wednesday that they Samson laid this riddle before them on Sunday the 3 days in the black they could not solve it and when the feast started on Wednesday on that fourth day of the week that's when they went to her and for 7 days she wept before him and we see that this weeping before her shows that this shallowness of this relationship because she's not trusting her husband well enough to say these men have said this and we see the shallowness of Samson is saying I'm not I haven't even told my parents so he's not humble and submissive submissive to his parents, nor is he even wanting to be in this union of one flesh with his wife. So what we're seeing here on and on and on is God's providence of this coming along and and God bringing about all these circumstances, yes, even this riddle. Let's see the resolution of this in verse 18. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? And he said to him, and I would not recommend this, men, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Uh, I'll just say this, Taylor, you just got engaged. Uh, some early pastoral advice, never call your wife a heifer, man. So, um, but what we see in this is a disdaining remark for his wife. That we see that this is a shallow relationship that God has orchestrated all of this, although there's no genuine love or care as there shouldn't be between these unequally yoked people. But even here, we see God's providence through mankind. We see these companions. We see Samson. We see Samson's wife. God created them all and ordained their steps leading to this moment in their lives. Your life is ordained your steps are ordained. Even on days when you're apathetic and feel like you aren't doing anything, your steps are ordained by God to bring about his glory and your ultimate good. The question is just whether or not those are gonna be steps towards faithfulness or God going to be dragging you towards righteousness. Let me prove this to you in Scripture. Proverbs sixteen nine: the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs twenty-one, one: the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Our steps, our heart, it is all ordained by God. I've I've been doing um, a lot of woodworking lately. I think between the woodworking and the hair, I'm taking this call to follow Jesus pretty seriously. But um, one thing that I'm learning, um, what really started me on this journey is, Pastor Bailey and Brian and I, uh, we built this pulpit, and I'm learning how much I love uh, woodworking. Perhaps something for us to consider to understand how God providentially ordains all of mankind. Uh, I've been learning in woodworking that you've gotta have the right tool for the job. Uh, I'm absolutely the builder. No one would ever accuse my tools of building this. No one would attribute the work uh, of my hands to the saw, the hammer, or the nails but they are my chosen instruments to bring about my will. My chosen instruments to bring about my will. Just as Christ was the chosen instrument of God to bring about God's will for mankind, and just as we, if we are the church, are God's chosen instruments of mankind to bring about his will, he ordains our steps. If God has chosen us for a purpose, we remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 11, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God created us for a purpose of working things all to the redounding glory of his name. In the same way, this is how we are called to live our life, that God provides us the means to do this. Church, let us behold the provision of God through our fellow workmen in the gospel, that God reveals himself through mankind, the people you're sitting to right now right now, either reveal the glory of God or his just punishment of the wicked. Do you realize that? That we are all created to redound to God's glory through either being objects of wrath or objects of glory. That God providentially, if you are in Christ, led you. You hated him before he saved you. God's providence in your life is not something to shrug our shoulders at and say, well, that's great, but it's something to worship him for. If it had not been for his providence, you would still be dead in your trespasses and sin. Let's behold the very work that Christ has done in the hearts of men to bring us back in accord with him. There is only but one hope for mankind. The hope for mankind is, while laws and institutions can fix things that we see going on in the world for a time, sin ultimately wins out apart from the gospel. We will be back here again. Racial reconciliation, as we said, it was accomplished at the cross, but we will see the bitter stings of sin over and over and over again until that dead heart has come to life in the gospel. Mankind is the very tool that God uses. Have we forgotten this? That what's going to fix the world, all of the narrative going out there in the world is, uh, raise your voice, raise your voice, raise your awareness, do this. Yes, hallelujah, amen, but raise your awareness of Scripture. Lift your voice to God and trust and believe in the gospel. That is the only thing that will change things. Suggesting anything else can truly fix mankind's sinfulness is not only short-sighted, it's blasphemy, because at that point, the gospel no longer is the good news of Christ. It is the okay news of God because God can reconcile some of us, but we have to fix ourselves. Mankind's only hope is the gospel. We must be dependent on it. Let's remember that we are ministers of reconciliation. God's workmanship to bring about his glory. What is the final way that we see God's providence in Judges 14? I believe we'll see that here and probably the one that first came into your mind when I said providence in possessions. God absolutely provides for us in possessions. We'll see this in verses 19 and 20. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon, one of the five cities of the Philistines, and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. The Spirit empowered Samson to go to the Philistine city. Did you catch that? That God empowered this. God empowered Samson to go and slay 30 men. How do we reconcile this with a God who is all love? These people had been storing up wrath as we have seen all throughout Judges for their willful disobedience to God. Friends, do you want some good news this morning? No one goes to hell because they don't know the name of Jesus. You know why people go to hell? For their glad rebellion against God. We go and share the gospel because that is the only way they have hope, but what condemns mankind, what condemned these Philistines to death was their glad rebellion against God. And Samson is the instrument in God's hand of their punishment. God was exacting justice We've been talking about it often this morning. It's probably all over your news feeds. Let's talk about justice. It's a word being thrown out so often without being defined. Therefore, we can never be on the same page. Friends, we do not want God's justice. God's justice is all of us in eternity in hell apart from him. We don't even want God's mercy. That's him overlooking our sins. But at that point, we are not holy and righteous to be united with him. We want his grace. And what this world needs is not justice nor mercy, but the grace of God and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit as their hearts are wedded to Christ in the gospel. We see that these men were killed and their bloody garments were given as the reward for the Philistines' treachery and cheating in this vow. They went to Samson's wife and cheated, threatened her. So Samson in anger goes We miss that. These these would have been bloody garments given. They would have known that these were probably from their brothers. We see that God had used all of this riddle and everything that happened to build up to this riddle to begin this enmity. Like we said at the beginning, this is the spark that starts it all. That God ordained all of this to bring this about so there would be enmity between Samson and the Philistines verse 19 and 20 ends by saying in hot anger he went back to the his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man as someone who struggles with anger uh, I can relate to Samson here leaving in hot anger he left didn't tell anyone where he was going I've done that often. I'm just so frustrated and angry, I can't even articulate. That's what Samson does. That's why Samson doesn't leave his wife here. We'll see as we start next week that his wife was given away because he didn't tell anyone where he was going. So in all of this, in these bloody garments, in this killing of the Philistines, where do we see the providential hand in God and possessions? Isn't that what I said? We see God's providence and possessions? What is the only possession in these two verses but the bloody garments? The bloody garments of a debt paid. At this point, let us remember too, we have accrued such a great debt that was paid not by our righteousness and all of what we would try to do, those are but filthy garments to the Lord, he says. But our debt, our great debt that we can never repay, was paid by the bloody garment of Christ as he was crucified on Calvary and lots were cast for his garments. And that when he gives us his righteousness, we use this verbiage, this mental picture and metaphor of garments given to us. Just as these garments were given to the Philistines, to these companions. Christ gives to us his garments, his robe of righteousness that is no longer uh, filthy as it's covered in blood, but that blood is now the blood of the lamb, the cleansing, atoning, sacrifice lamb of God that was slain for your sin. And it covers you when you stand before God on judgment day. God is going to ask, why should I let you into my heaven? And the only thing that you will have to say is the only thing that we see the martyrs say in Revelation that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word Of our testimony, the bloody garments, may we remember that that blood that was spilt should have been our blood. That the blood spilt in injustice across the world is nothing compared to the blood of the greatest injustice ever of the brutal murder of God's Son. But let us not forget, as we saw in Acts, that God predestined this and ordained this so that way everyone who can hear my voice at this moment can hear. Good news. The greatest providential act in human history, the greatest provision of God is Calvary. Church, let us behold this. Let us fix our eyes on this. Let us understand this providence of God. Let us see it for what it is. That we are no longer just companions as these men were given, but we are now not only clean, and God doesn't just put up with us, but we're not companions, but we're co-heirs we not forget? But I would be remiss to to not mention here that God does also provide prosperity materially, but what a poor prize compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Seeing uh, material possessions as more splendid than Christ is to prefer dung over a steak dinner. Nonetheless, in our prosperity materially, we are made more grateful at God's seeing to our well-being. That would be why any gospel known as the prosperity gospel that says God wants you to be only healthy or wealthy or prosperous is an abomination. Do we not see this in Samson's life, that God's provision to deliver Israel came through his suffering? It is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. As we sang, we will take up our cross and follow him. What are we to do in such light of a great providence such as this? We behold God's providence more clearly, even in sin. In creation, through mankind, and in Christ our greatest possession, and worship him more fully for it. Friends, if you have not heard this gospel, that is Christ and Christ alone crucified and faith in him by grace alone are you saved. You have need of repentance and believing in this good news of the gospel and the good news if you hear this message, whether in here or in our live stream, that if you believe it is because the Holy Spirit is regenerating your heart. He's giving you the faith to believe that you need to be born again of heaven and this is not a work of yourself. If you believe it is the gift of God and today is the day of salvation. I pray that you would let us know here so we can rejoice with you or if you were watching on live stream that you would find a faithful local church to celebrate this news with. So Father, thank you for your gospel. That it is true, that it is good, that it is worthy of all of our worship. God, will we see it as the greatest act of providence of your provision and your ordering and orchestrating all things as we read in Romans eight twenty eight, that we know that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. But Father, would I just be able to for a moment speak to those that are not in you in this room, we pray that you would save. for your glory but for your church I pray we would go out in this truth and we would worship more fully knowing that everything is already in your hand God that you hold the world in your hand that you you alone can bind the chains of the pleiades that you alone know the recesses of the deep that you alone have called forth the waters and told them to go there and no further God if we can't see how great you are in your gospel let us look to creation if we can't see how great you are. God, let us see even in our sin that you have grace. God, we worship you, and we praise you, and we thank you for your great, amazing grace in our life. It's in your name we pray, amen. So would you stand?